Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Hello, this is the Anxiety Rx Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Russ Kennedy, a medical doctor and neuroscientist who suffered from crippling, crippling anxiety for a very, very long time and had to find my own way out. Today, I'm going to talk about something that's kind of personal to me and what I'm kind of going through right now. I have three dogs, Buddha, Riley, and Ellie. Buddha is 14 and a half, Riley is about seven, and Ellie is about three. Buddha has been with me since my birthday, November 29th, 2009, and he is starting to fail. And I am looking at the decision of putting him to sleep. And while he's still quite functional, his rear end isn't working very well. Like he doesn't walk very well, but he has good days and bad days. And like I said, this is really personal to me. And I wrestled with sharing it with you, but uh, I think it's important to understand that, you know, I'm not anxiety free by any means at all, but I'm a million times better than I used to be. You know, this would have sent me into orbit 10 years ago. And now it's, it's something that of course I feel and it makes me sad and it makes me frustrated and it makes me angry that I have to lose him because I think it harkens back to losing my father in a way like losing something that you love is really really difficult and i think for those of us with anxiety ocd depression i think our animals are so important because it's a love we can trust and i think when you have anxiety there was something in your background typically not always but typically that you couldn't trust in the way of love. Like I couldn't trust my father, even though he was never abusive or violent or whatever. And I know I mentioned that many, many times before. But I couldn't trust the love from him because it was wrapped in so tightly with pain when he would go depressed or psychotic or manic or whatever. So the thing about our animals is that we love them so much and unfortunately, you know, they don't live as long as we do. It's been said that a day for a dog is a week. It's like a week for us or a week for us is like a day for a dog. I don't remember exactly. I'm not 
exactly thinking as clearly as I'd like to today. I'm, I'm pretty upset about this situation because my dog boarders that take Riley, Ellie, and Buddha, when we go away on holidays, kind of called us up and said, hey, you know, we can't really take Buddha anymore because he's just not that functional. And even though he can walk and do things, it's, it's not fair to him. And I, I agree with that. Um, I do get frustrated with it, but not from the point of view of being frustrated with the, the borders. I just get frustrated with the fact that, you know, why does he have to fail? Why does he have to not be able to walk properly? Like it breaks my heart. I take them out on a walk twice a day and just to see him kind of limping and just doing the dog thing. Like you just, you don't know any different, you know, but I knew him when he would, he could jump three or four feet off the ground. We, Leandra, my daughter and I call it the, the four paw hop. And he, he would chase that ball endlessly. If you ever see old videos of me on Facebook with him, you know, he was a great soccer goalie as well. So you'd kick the ball and he would jump at it and block it and stuff. So he was crazy for the ball. And to see him kind of decline like this breaks my heart. And getting back to, to the whole thing about us and our animals, you know, we love them. And one of the things that I do uh, is sometimes I block love for myself. And I think that's true for all of us with anxiety. I think the reason we have anxiety is we block love for ourselves, typically because that love when we were younger in so on some level wasn't safe. We didn't perceive that love was safe. We either had an abusive parent or a parent that was neglectful or rejected us or whatever. The love wasn't safe and pure. And I know there's no perfect parent. I know that it involves sensitivity as well. I was a very sensitive child, still am sensitive child. And I think that sensitivity works in our favor. It helps me read people. It helps me understand them. It helps me be a really good doctor for them, especially when it comes to anxiety. But the, the downside of that is I, I feel everything. So one of the things that I would do and I would suggest to my anxiety people is to love yourself like you love your dog or cat or pet, whatever pet you have. So I would do this thing where I, I rub Buddha's head or his body or his belly or whatever, and I get all this love on my hands, and then I shove it into myself. <laughs> so I do this. I did this today with him because I've been spending more time with him lately, just on the ground and giving him kisses on his snout and, and just loving on him and giving him extra treats that the other two don't get. So I have to make sure the other two, Riley and Ellie are outside or whatever. And then I'll give him a piece of ham from the, from the packet um, just because I love him so much. And, and I'm, I'm, it's so hard for me to see him fail because I don't remember, I've had it for almost 15 years. I don't really remember a lot of what life it was without him. And he has seen me through, you know, being suicidal, being so anxious. And, and I write in the book that, you know, sometimes I wouldn't even go out of the house unless it was to take him out. So he was my only sort of connection to the world for a long time. You know, I would go to work. I, for some reason, I could just go to work, come home. I wouldn't do much, much of anything else. There were some years in there that I was so anxious that I just wouldn't want to leave the house. But I could always go out with him and he would always, people would always come up to him and say, oh, is he an Irish wolfhound? Is he this or he that? Because he has this kind of generic kind of like loving face. Everyone loves, everyone loves Buddha. That's the saying around the house is that everybody loves Buddha. And the reason I call him Buddha is because he's so mellow. Like when I first went to get him, 
uh, in November 26, 2009, they said, uh, you know, he'll be ready to go in, in three days, which was my birthday, November 29, 2009. So I thought, well, this is a message from Gad. So I, um, I knew it was him and it was him and his sister, uh, in the pen and his sister was running around like crazy. And, and he was just mellow at the back, like, Hey man, what's going on? What's happening, dude? And I picked him up and he just melted into me and it was like, okay, well, this is my dog. This is my dog. So I picked him up three days later. He weighed 14.8 pounds. Then he weighs 85 pounds now. And, and, you know, living to 14 and a half is a long time for an 85 pound dog. And I realized that, and I think he's lived this long because he gets so much love. And again, coming back to it, I think it's one of those things that we can trust love from our pets. And I, and I think that that's so healing. And it also shows us that we can give that same love to ourselves. And that's what I do with him. Like I said, I, I love on him, I pet him, and then I push that love into myself because I, to this day, still kind of resist giving love to myself. I'm a million times better than I was, but it's still kind of that old unconscious pattern. So I think when we, when we love something so much, it just shows us that we're capable of that love. And in fact, I'm a little suspicious of people that don't have a connection to animals, that don't have that sort of loving connection, especially the ones that, that have anxiety or depression or, or are an addiction, they're alcoholics or whatever. You know, I'm always kind of suspicious of those people that kind of keep animals at bay because I think they really are blocking a huge source of love, not only for the animal and from the animal, but for themselves. Like you get to experience this sense of love. Now, of course, the other side of that coin is when they go, it's devastating. Like it's, it's, it's devastating when they go. Like I, I've been trying to imagine what life is going to be without him. You know, I have another two dogs to kind of take up the slack a little bit, but Buddha has been, you know, and again, I, I call him Buddha because he's just so mellow. Like, he's just like, whatever, dude, whatever you want to do until it comes to a ball. Like a ball, he's, he's a bit psycho when it comes to a ball, but not so much anymore because he's not as active as he used to be. I know I'm kind of rambling here today. And, and again, I kind of wrestle myself with myself as to whether or not I should put this, this podcast out because it's so personal. But in a way, it shows me the depth of love that I, that I actually can create within myself, even if I, even if I have a block for putting that love into myself, it just shows you that you can love and you can feel love and you can allow it. And I think it's just so important because love is basically what heals fear as cliche as that sounds, you know, there is only love and fear. And I talk about this in the book as well. It's kind of like in a closed box. And the more fear you push in, the more love you push out. But the converse of that is the more love you push in, the more fear you push out. And I believe that that love, that loving spirit that we have for ourselves and we have for that younger version of us, if we can put that love into the younger wounded child that's in us, we can heal that original wound. You know, Bruce Perry, who wrote this book with Oprah called uh, What Happened to You, talks about this neurosequential model of healing. So when, we, when we're formed, when we're embryos, it's interesting the way the neural tube, the way the brain and spinal cord form is initially 
the outside of the embryo involutes, it turns on itself. So the outside becomes the inside. And then that forms the brain and the spinal cord. And it's interesting because the brain makes an internal representation of the outside world for the rest of our lives. I just found it fascinating the way that that the embryo forms this brain and spinal cord through this involution of the neuro that makes the neural tube. And then the brainstem, which is the bottom part of the brain, the part that sort of controls the body most, forms first. And then the limbic system forms kind of second, the emotional kind of brain. And then the cortex forms last and doesn't even mature until our late 20s. So if your brainstem, the first part of your brain, is formed in survival, if your mother's stressed, if your father's stressed, when you're still in utero, your brainstem is forming in this milieu of survival. And then that dictates how the emotional brain is going to develop. Because if your brainstem develops in this survival fashion, your limbic system, your emotional system will adopt this survival mechanism as well. And then your cognitive mind, your cortex, your prefrontal cortex, your thinking brain will form on top of those two survival-based entities. So it's no wonder that we sensitive people have this look at life that it's more about survival than it's about thriving. And I think when we go back and we find that younger version of ourselves, this is what Dr. Perry talks about too, when we do this sequentially, when we go back and we find the body and we heal the body, it relates through everything. It takes us back to that place where the injury first occurred and allows us a chance to change that so that we change the brainstem, we change the body, we change the bottom part of the brain. And then the emotional part of our brain kind of in reverse heals on top of that. And then the cognitive part of our brain heals on top of that because I notice in my healing from anxiety, I still get worries. I just, I just don't pay that much attention to them anymore. I just sort of see them as something that's outside of me and that kind of humorously that my mind is creating because I know that I'm stressed. So I'm getting more worries these days because I'm stressed because of, you know, because of Buddha. So it just shows this energy. If we have this energy of stress in our system and we grew up with, with stress and trauma and, and a source of love that we maybe couldn't trust, we will tend to move into survival. We will tend to look at the world as a dangerous place, consciously or unconsciously or both. And that forms the way that we feel about the world. And when we go through difficult times, like I am with Buddha, and Buddha could be around for another six months, it really makes us aware of how fleeting and how in the balance our mental health can be. And when we get stressed, if we're able to build capacity and resilience in the nervous system, which I have done for myself, and I'm hoping that I'm doing that for other people, we can handle these things so much better because I know that if I went through this five years ago, this would be absolutely devastating. It's hard now, but I can't imagine what it would be like going through this five years ago when I didn't have the capacity and the resilience of my nervous system that I have built by connecting with the younger version of me, by by connecting with my body. You know, I've said that anxiety is really, 
is really a separation of your mind and your body and your adult self from your child self. So things like yoga, breath work, just creating a conscious intention to be whole, to create, to, to connect your mind and your body together is helpful. And then having the adult in you connect with the child in you that was hurt, that we have, the adult has kind of pushed that child away because the child holds our pain. Connecting the adult and the child together and connecting the, that wasn't good, by the way, if you heard that bark, that was Ellie. But connecting the adult self and the child self and connecting the mind and the body, that's how we heal anxiety. That's, I don't know if there's any other way. There's ways, there's neurofeedback, there's, there's hypnosis, there's all sorts of ways that'll make us feel better. But to really heal, we have to connect our adult self with our child self. Again, we have to connect our mind and our body because basically we got chopped up into disparate parts when we experienced trauma as a child. So those disparate parts affect our nervous system. They make us look at the world through this milieu of survival rather than growth. And as we put our mind and body back together, and as we put our adult self and our child self back together, we start developing this sense that the world is a safe place, that I can handle things, that if things come up that are disturbing or troubling or painful, that I have enough resilience and capacity in my nervous system that can handle it. I think that's going to be it for today. Thanks for listening to me. And I hope you can relate to this. And I hope if you do have a pet, that you can love yourself as much as you love your pet. And I'll see you next week. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book. Also, coincidentally, called Anxiety Rx. Or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website, www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on The Anxiety Rx podcast.